This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple and natural ingredients. Learn more at mainecrisp.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I think is extraordinary, inspirational to me, and I think will inspire all of you. And today, I am so excited to learn more about urban forests and foraging and our ecosystem from an extraordinary human being. Their name is Candace Thompson, and usually I never read people's bios, but this is such a good bio that I'm reading it word for word. <laughs> so Candace Thompson, all pronouns accepted, is a human being who collaborates with soil, plants, microbes, fungi, animals, food, land, digital media, and other human beings in the search for healing, resilience, and mutualism as we face the climate crisis. Their project, the Collaborative Urban Resilience Banquet, with the really good shorthand of CURB, uses citizen science, non-human storytelling, and foraged community meals to unpack the complexities of edible urban ecosystems and imagine a future where the streets are clean enough to eat off of. They're also the manager of Solar One's Stuyvesant Cove Park, a two-acre native food forest in lower Manhattan, where the public is encouraged to forage from clean land atop a former industrial site. The park is currently being raised and rebuilt due to sea level rise and man-made climate chaos. Candace, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I first found out about you just watching some of the extraordinary stuff you do on Instagram. And I was like, I need to know so much more. I wanted to begin at the beginning, which is to say you're so deeply in this fascinating interrelated world of soil and climate. But how did it all begin? I knew you grew up in eastern Kentucky. But I want to hear more about that growing up with hunters and fishers and foraging and eating off the land. So yeah, so as you said, that's where I'm from. And my parents were teenagers when they found out they were pregnant with me. So they were necessarily very resourceful when I was growing up. And they relied on the things that my family had done for, I guess, ages, right? They grew their own food. We had a big garden in our backyard. Everyone fished and hunted. I was actually going to like share this story that I remember that I, in thinking about this conversation, realized was actually probably pretty formative. When I was about four, my dad, Saturday morning, it was his job to get me fed. And my father's love language is biscuits and gravy. And I will, I will accept that love language 24-7, 365. Um, and so Saturday morning comes and little candy gets up and there's a big plate of biscuits and gravy for me on the table. And I sit down, start eating it. And my uncle calls my dad on the phone and I hear them say in the other room, yeah, candy's loving that rabbit gravy. And I, of course, drop my fork, start sobbing and like run from the table, right? because I don't want to eat bunnies. And so I distinctly remember this being one of my like early memories of him coming down and sitting down with me in my room and explaining to me that the reason we ate the deer and the frog and the rabbits and the fish was because he said, you know, humans have, have changed the landscape so much. And I would add the asterisks now that like 
European settlers had changed the landscape so much that, you know, there, there wasn't as much habitat for the deer and the rabbits and we'd killed all of their predatory species. And so we had to, we had to keep the ecosystem in balance for those beings to stay healthy. You know, if you have too many deer, they get things like chronic wasting disease, right? They get hit by cars more. You ultimately cause more pain if you don't kind of help keep a system in check, right? And then we moved to Florida and like, it was a big part of our life to go fishing and go collect crab traps. And I just, I had such a direct relationship to where particularly my protein came from. And then, you know, going back to Kentucky every summer to hang out with my family, it would be going fishing and going blackberry picking and getting hickory nuts in the fall time. And like about 10 years ago when I was, you know, kind of grappling with my climate grief and feeling so powerless and kind of disconnected, I was like, you know what? I used to feel really, really connected. I used to have like a very kind of intimate thread. And I was walking my dog one day and I start looking around. And I'm like, oh, that's a mulberry tree. Dang. Oh, look, there's dandelions. I wonder what else here is edible, you know? And I started learning about all the plants that grow in my neighborhood, which have come from across the world and the many ways that they can be used as food and medicine and craft. And it just kind of spiraled. Is this neighborhood, it was an urban neighborhood where you in New York City by that time? Yeah, I've now lived in New York City longer than I've ever lived anywhere else by like a factor of three. So I've been here about 15 years. And I live in Bushwick, about a half a mile from one of our three beautiful Superfund sites. So it is a, you know, former industrial neighborhood, rapidly gentrifying. Ironically, my neighborhood is also where a lot of food comes in and out. It is a big shipping area for a lot of kind of supply chain sources. Um, so I see truckloads of live chickens and, you know, pallets full of meat and grain and stuff on my dog walks every day. So it is a food hub in a pretty unexpected place as well. I, I didn't know that about Bushwick. I, I definitely think of it more as the gentrification, hipster coffee shops, and some really great reused building spaces. What was it like going from Florida and Kentucky to this urban landscape? And why did you come? Did you come for art school? Um, I came because I wanted to be a schmactor and then decided that that wasn't something I wanted to do anymore. You know, I've done a little bit of that, but kind of like a lot of folks I've, I've heard interviewed on your podcast and a lot of folks who I admire, you know, the, the root kind of in retrospect, you're like, I guess that all kind of makes sense. But, you know, like to think about it as a linear trajectory, you're like, yeah, this is really a strange story. Um, but yeah, I moved here about 15 years ago. And, you know, I moved here from Chicago. I'd lived in England. I'd lived in France. I've lived in West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky. I, I, I get around. Do you think the notion of home being a transitory place has influenced the way that you look at plants and what's indigenous and what belongs and what doesn't belong? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely impacts, you know, I think a lot about indigeneity and immigrants. And obviously I have many friends from, you know, I live in New York. It's a very diverse group of people. And so I think being a person who had traveled so much, I can respect and appreciate any other being who does the same because I do think it kind of makes you a little bit, you get good at adapting. And I think that I have a lot of respect for the weedy species who can like show up and be like, oh, cool, this is a piece of pavement. I can do this. <laughs> I can make this work. You know what I mean? I think there's a lot to learn from these beings. We've, we've made a real hot mess of things and they're just like, that's cool. I can handle it. I, I root for those kinds of underdogs. I want to come back to that, but first I want to understand your work in the context of your art, right? Because you got an, an MFA. So how do you think about your practice of art and climate change and how you turn up in the world? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I think a lot about the fact that like I left Kentucky, a, a largely either industrial or agricultural space, moved to New York, got a master's degree, which no one else in my family, uh, at least on my father's side, has 
and then became a farmer ostensibly. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But yeah, so I have a degree in integrated media art, which basically can just mean storytelling with whatever. And so I've always thought of myself as pretty agnostic about which tools I use. And so, yeah, one of the projects I started while I was in grad school was The Curb of many, but I will say it's the one that I feel kind of most personally attached to. And then I was just really lucky. I graduated and I was supposed to like go on a residency in China. I was going to like have a sh show in uh, around the DC area. I just had all kinds of things I was supposed to be doing, but a pandemic hit. And my friend and former boss, Emily, had to leave the city because uh, she was a single mom of two kids and it was a pandemic. And so they offered me her job managing this park. And I kind of frame it for myself as a little bit of like an arts fellowship. Like I, I stopped to think about it. I was like, okay, I've never really had a full-time job like this. It's really limiting in a lot of ways of your time. But then I was like, but how many artists do you know then get handed literally two acres of land on Manhattan and said, like, do what you want, you know? And it, it's a space where I know that the soil is relatively clean. I know all the plants that live there. I am there every day. Like, all of a sudden, I could be like, wow, I can do what I do, but I, I can now do it every day and make a salary. So I couldn't really turn it down. And I will say, like, it was really, even in those first couple of weeks of being there, like, I'd hop a fence and be, like, pulling curly dock, which is a weed. I'm supposed to weed it, right? I'm going to take it and make grain out of it. Um, and people are like, what are you doing? And then I get to be like, oh, I'm harvesting this, and I'm going to hang it up at the office, and then later we'll make grain. And, like, you know, some dudes see me do it, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm making pancakes for you. It's just going to take a while. This this space where all of a sudden you can have these kind of one-on-one -on -one interactions every day, like, that's what kind of keeps me keeps me going, you know? And so do you feel that what you're doing now is storytelling through weeds and this plot of land and forests? Or am I being way too literal here? And you're like, no, I'm being a farmer. No, I, I definitely think of myself more as a storyteller and a community builder. I'm not a very skilled farmer. You know, the farmer who actually provides most of my vegetables is like the best farmer I know. Shout out Farmer Ted. Wait, who's the farmer? We want to know who that is. Oh, Ted Blomgren and his wife, Jan, they run Windflower Farm. I help manage a CSA of theirs. I've actually done it for about a decade. They're amazing. Windflower, check them out. But yeah, so I mean, I would definitely, I, I continue to frame what I do as education, as um, community activation, as storytelling. And you do seem to be so incredibly knowledgeable and humble. So those two things are going together here. But where have you found the most information? Like, where has your study taken you in understanding the Indigenous plants or Indigenous ways? Wow, it's come from so many places and it, it's constant. You know, I remember when I first started at Stycove, it's like what I knew was weeds. I didn't really know that many native plants, honestly, you know, and like that first six months, it would just be like, okay, uh, who, okay, I know you're an aster, but I don't know what kind. I spent basically every waking hour kind of obsessively just wanting to know. And it helps that I care greatly, you know what I mean? And could invest that time and energy. Yeah. And then I think, you know, the, that's the amazing, beautiful thing about the internet, right? Is you've got all of these communities of people between social media and between chat forums and between books. I'm an avid reader. Like there's just so many places where when you've got a problem, someone out there can help you figure out how to solve it. Are there any books that people should take a look at that you can recommend? For sure. I mean, one of the things I used to do on my curb uh, handle on Instagram and that I kind of hope to be able to do again um, was to read excerpts from books that I had kind of amassed in my research and two books that I've recently read that I um, I really liked. One, I just finished listening to All Our Relations, which is Winona LaDuke's book, which was written in the late 90s. 
Um, and it just highlighted for me so many indigenous activists, both individuals and groups. You know, one of them, uh, Gachi Cook, she's a Mohawk from the Akwazazne Nation up in northern New York. She did this whole amazing project in the 80s testing Mohawk women's mother's milk because places like, a, a, I think it was a, a Con Ed or a General Electric plant right next to where they lived had contaminated the water and they all had PCBs in their breast milk. She's been doing that since the 80s. Like, I can't believe I didn't know who this woman was, you know? And then the other book is a book by an animal scientist, an animal behaviorist named Fred Provenza, and it's called Nourishment. He does a really interesting dive into how animals know what they can and can't eat and kind of what that might mean for us. I watch my dog do it. My dog is a forager. Like, when we're on walks, he loves to, like, eat different pieces of grass, and he knows which ones he can eat and which ones he can't. And, like, goats do that. Uh, so many animals have that implicit knowledge. And it just kind of, like, to me is such a fascinating thing because it took humanity a long, long time to figure out what we could and couldn't eat. There is probably something that we could be tuning back into about our kind of animal wisdom about food. And I, I just, I thought it was a really fascinating kind of argument. That is completely fascinating. There's so much more to learn. I'd love to hear more about the beginning of Curb and that project. Curb um, kind of transformed into my work at the park, but um, what I did essentially for my thesis was I would collect stuff from around the greater New York City area. So, and by stuff, I mean plants, fungi, and some animals. I would toxicity test them through Cornell's Nutrient Analysis Lab, which sounds fancy, um, but anyone can do it. Um, it's like $25 a sample. You have to weigh stuff and dehydrate it and then send it in. But like, it's it's not rocket science. Wait, what a what animals were you dehydrating? Um, I did Asian shore crabs. I guess they're just in the water off the edge of Manhattan. Oh boy, they're in the water everywhere. Um, they are in the water everywhere. Yes, they uh, are eating our local crustaceans out of house and home. So I collected the first round up in, uh, it's one of the bays off of the north part of Queens where we used to get a great deal of our clams and you can't anymore. Um, and then after that, when I was going to serve them properly, I collected them out on Long Island um, where people collect blue crab and, and clams and oysters and things because I figured if you'll eat those, then you can eat these. They're in the same water, you know what I mean? But yeah, so I, I collect this stuff and I uh, dehydrate it and I send it to Cornell. And what they send me back is um, a reading of basically anything in the, in the periodic table that's in that sample. Now, what that does not include are all of the more complicated chemicals that are now pervasive in our environment. So the polychlorinated biphenyls and the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and the DDEs and glyphosate, for instance. Like if you want to try and test for glyphosate, good freaking luck, because it's literally designed to dissolve um, and become non-proprietary pretty quickly. So, you know, I would then compare through kind of talking with soil scientists and stuff like that. I learned that, like, you know, really you could just kind of start with things like arsenic, cadmium and lead because they were very, very prevalent in urban soils as a result of anthropogenic sources. So because I'm but an artist with a limited brain, I would get my big spreadsheet of all of these elements and I would look expressly at arsenic, cadmium and lead. And then I would compare those to the EU standards in our food system because we have these contaminants in our food system um, and use those as kind of metrics of like, okay, so there's, you know, 0.06 milligrams per kilogram cadmium in these mulberries. The limit to the upper limit for cadmium and dark chocolate is 0.8. So if you eat dark chocolate at least once a year, these mulberries by comparison aren't 
as bad, right? And so, like, using it as just a way to kind of challenge our notions of purity in our food system, really, and to complicate the ways that we think about land, and ultimately to then think about, like, our supply chains, because the further you get from where your food comes from, there's just so many places and, and instances in which you you have no clue where that stuff's coming from, and you have no clue what's happening to it along the way. Actually, I, as an example, I just read this week that New Yorker article about Randy Constant, I think his name was, who for like a decade was passing off GMO corn and soy as organic, like sold like seven to eight percent of the United States corn and soy as organic, made a bank and yeah, gambled it all away. Who do you trust, right? Who do we trust to feed us is one of the questions I often ask. Who do you trust? I, I trust Farmer Ted for sure. I trust the land. You know, I've, I forage around the city. I do not, it is not my like primary food source. However, I try to engage with my land and know that if I'm taking care of it, I hope that in reciprocity, it's taking care of me. I trust, you know, like I get wild rice every year from um, Winona, Redu Winona LaDuke's organization, Honor the Earth. I um, get my free trade or, you know, fair trade spices from Diaspora Co. Like I, I have all these kinds of entities that I found largely because of social media, who I think are really trying to kind of shorten those supply chains as much as possible and make sure that that money is being invested back in the communities that bring these things to us, right? You know, like cardamom, you can't get local cardamom. That's not a thing, right? <laughs> and so, so like, how do you, how do you find someone who is actually going and working with that community and investing in how they're doing their work? Well, you're also really interested in the notion of food and the way that it's valued, some of our misguided notions. And I'm really interested in the question of animals versus a vegetarian diet. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to kind of start big picture, like the way we value what we value, I think is just so fascinating, you know, and I think about being from Appalachia, I think a lot about ramps, right? And the fact that, you know, for, I don't know, nigh on 100 years, they were hillbilly onions and nobody wanted anything to do with them until some chef got a hold of them. And now they're, you know, being eaten out of house and home. Right. And then compare ramps to, say, field garlic, which is an invasive weed that's growing all over the city. This summer, I did a banquet where I made um, field garlic four ways. So I made like a field garlic oil. I made a pesto. I made some pickles and I uh, made a butter, a compound butter. I promise you, no one could have said like, oh, these aren't ramps. I didn't lie to them and tell them that wasn't. You know what I mean? But like you, the, the ways in which we say like, oh, that's a weed or oh, that's, ooh, that's not a thing. Something only becomes a value once it's scarce. And so one of the foods that I, I sometimes serve at, at banquets is pigeons, um, which always gets a look. Um, and I think is is a good one to use because of that. Like it's one of those things that kind of like hooks people a little bit. Sure, because they have very, very strong opinions about pigeons, um, flying rats, and all of that. Right, when in fact they live here because they were a colonizer's food source. You know, they now infiltrate every single one of our cities, but for millennia, humans have literally had dovecotes built into their houses because they were not only a meat source, but a precious guano source that they would then use for fertilizer. And so, like, kind of challenging these notions of, like, ew, that's a rat and it needs to stay away from me, as opposed to, like, actually, my friend Rola sent me a really awesome recipe from Egypt where they also raise them on their roofs and harvest them and barbecue them. So why is that grosser than a Tyson chicken? You know, like kind of challenging these notions. Now, I want to be clear. I do not feed people city pigeons. I um, Actually, one of the things I would like to be able to test is 
collecting a few pigeons that I'm, uh, I have a dove coat on my back porch. I've had it for about two years. Then one day I'm going to, I'm going to person up and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to collect a few squab and then I'm going to test them hopefully at Cornell where they also do the testing of chickens. Um, and I actually spoke to a meat scientist who explained to me the whole like chicken testing. I mean, it's crazy. The amount of birds that just go in the trash, like hundreds, like if one comes back bad on the line, hundreds of birds go in the dump. But, you know, like another thing to talk about is like roadkill, right? Just this past two weeks ago, I saw a deer get hit by the side of the road. Here's a meat source that just died. It's fresh, right? It just died for nothing. It's dead carcass sitting there is going to attract more animals, which will also get hurt. Here is food. This is this is a being who just died because of our choices. Honor its life and take it home. There are places where that's completely legal and allowed. And it's interesting to me who regulates if you can do that, when you can do that, and how you can do that. But you you also ask the question, you know, why is a plant-based diet inherently more ecologically sound or harm-free um, because of monocultures? I'd love to have you talk about that a little bit. I think one of the things that that's very difficult <laughs> living in late capitalism, I say that optimistically, um, is that anything can be commodified and sold back to us. And I feel like the, the, the kind of like unspoken of that is like, don't think anymore, just buy it. It's organic. You don't have to worry about it. It's vegan. It's fine. You know, like, oh, it's it's harm free. It's cage free. We have to keep thinking. We have to keep thinking critically about these things because they're so much more complex and nuanced than just like, I don't eat meat. Therefore, I'm doing the right thing. Like, ugh. OK, if your diet is entirely coffee, bananas, chocolate, quinoa, strawberries, like, first of all, there are plenty of animals being killed in that process. Not to mention there are incredibly unethical working conditions for most of the people creating those things. You know, you're, you're getting them shipped. There's no local bananas or coffee. I hate to break it to you. Understanding that all of us are coming at this from very different perspectives. There are people for whom eating meat is a sign that they have made it. Once again, it's about nuance. It frustrates me that that message is completely lost. And I think it's because, I mean, just talk about storytelling. That it's just so much simpler to make grand sweeping statements than it is to have something with nuance. And so the way that the storytelling goes, meat is bad, plants are good. And it's just, it does a disservice to the natural world. Absolutely. Like all things we see right now, right? It's so easy to just kind of paint things in these black and whites. And I'm sorry, it's just not that simple. You know, there's plenty of critiques for why folks can't afford a plant-based diet. There, you know, there are plenty of reasons why there should be hunters. Just another example, like cows. Uh, there's a farmer who lives down the road. My, my partner and I bought some land upstate and there's a farmer down the road from us. He has a couple of cows because he sells, you know, halves of beef at the end of the year to make some money. Mm -hmm. They have calves every spring. The, the cows make milk for the calves. Cows now, we've, we've evolved with cows for, you know, hundreds of years. Cows now make more milk than their children can consume. So he throws away gallons of milk every day unless someone comes along and gets it from him because he literally just can't store it. He's not a dairy producer, right? So like, you know, there are these ways in which it's like you're stealing from a baby cow. No. And so I think for me, it's always about kind of like looking for the abundance around you and trying to help maintain balance, not saying, okay, well, I do X 
and that is the righteous way. And if you eat only like five or six things, you're definitely not doing your body or your ecosystem a, a service, right? The more diverse your palate can be and the more we can try to be intentional and, and humble about how we move through this world, I think is kind of all we can do really. With, with that, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about abundance in its manifold expressions. So stay with us and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple, natural ingredients. It all began with buckwheat. I am obsessed with buckwheat because my husband, Barkley, is now gluten-free, but buckwheat is the way to go. The company's founders, Karen and Steve Getz, added nuts and seeds and dried fruits and baked them into this incredibly delicious, easy-to-enjoy crisp. Their friends loved them, their family loved them, everyone craved them. Why? Because they've got this unexpected flavor and chewy meets crispy texture. They're a family-owned and operated business, and they work with their local community and farmers to celebrate everything that has to do with Maine. And as you guys all know, I'm obsessed with Maine. So when they're thinking about what to make with these crisps, it's their tartary buckwheat with pure maple syrup. They were thinking about health and flavor that they wanted everyone to share and enjoy. Because snack time is your time, you got to check out these crisps. Learn more at maincrisp.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Speaking Broadly, and this is Dana Cowan, and my guest today is Candace Thompson. Candace, I'm so excited to hear your optimism around abundance, and I want to talk about all kinds of abundance. One thing you were talking earlier in the show about invasive species. What are your thoughts on the invasives? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess we always have to start with like the term invasive, right? Um, you know, I have heard some accounts that even that term itself actually is rooted in Nazi ideology. Um, you know, these kinds of ideas of blood and soil, right? Who is supposed to be somewhere and who is an outsider? Um, so it's a term that I, I sometimes use as a shorthand because people understand it. But let's also, like all things, hold it with the nuance that, like, some things are, like, actually, literally, chemically allelopathic, um, which means that, you know, like garlic mustard, for instance, it's a plant that grows here because Europeans brought it here. If you live in the Northeast, it is abundant in our forests. Um, it's also delicious. Um, but its, its roots secrete chemicals into the ground that inhibit other plants from growing. Now, plenty of native plants do this as well. Black walnut, for instance. So it's not like, oh, that is like inherently an evil thing, right? It's just, it is a thing it does. And in this ecosystem, it has an impact. And so thinking about garlic mustard, like you and I could go into any city park right now, and I promise you, we would find scads of it. It's actually up all four seasons of the year. You can eat the greens, you can eat the flowers, you can eat the roots. They're kind of like horseradish. You can make mustard, literal mustard out of the seeds, which are prolific and spread like crazy. So like, here's something that we literally brought here as a food source. It jumped the garden wall and now it is transforming the landscape, right? We could also argue that really the one invasive species is humans and particularly like a Western perspective on land, right? GMO so uh, soy and corn, lawns, those are pretty invasive species that are radically changing our ecosystem, but nobody looks at those. They all look at the like wild garlic mustard. 
But here is a plant that is delicious and is all around us. And yet our strategy, much like with dandelions in the lawn, is kill it, poison it. As opposed to, wow, that's that's actually a food that I am helping to re-indigenize or decolonize or at least just like steward the land if I go and collect that plant and make it part of my diet. Why wouldn't I do that? It's free. It's abundant. It would help everyone involved to do so. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I like to look for those those plants, those teachers. You know, right now, anybody who drives upstate, Japanese knotweed, right? What would it look like for us to have cottage industries where we figure out how to make use of this paper? People do. They make paper out of it. There's a really awesome group out of Slovenia called Tranya Collective that makes Japanese knotweed paper. It's a food when it's grown on clean land. It can also probably be fed to goats or, you know, ruminants. It's also important for native bees now that goldenrod is, is in such decline. So, like, we're never going to restore our ecosystems back to some kind of fictitious point, right? Like, oh, if only we could, you know, make America 1492 again. Well, in 1492, that was but a moment in time, too. And indigenous communities who were here were sharing and trading crops and things were moving and, and changing, Right. They had corn. Corn came from Central America, right? And took millennia or centuries at least to become the thing we know today that the Haudenosaunee grow. It's not native there either, but it is now an indigenous food, right? And so like these ideas of how we kind of define the the point of when something is or isn't supposed to be there, um, I think is pretty hubristic. How do we make the change? How do people come to understand the value of a dandelion. That's kind of where my work started, right? Was like this summer I, I had an ice cream social at the park and I collected plants from the park. I made five different types of ice cream. Only one had dairy, all the rest were vegan. One of them was dandelion root. I'll tell you, it was a freaking hit. It was everybody's favorite because it's delicious. And so like, here's one of these ways that you can kind of take something and 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 flip the notions of value about it. Oh, what's this like chocolatey, peanut buttery, delicious coffee-like ice cream? It's dandelion roots. For real? Yeah. Like the dandelions that grow in the yard? Yes, those. Yes, those. Those. That's it. It's just that easy. I think that's one of the things I really like about doing this is because food is so universal, right? And so if you can get somebody to like something like that, it shifts everything. One of the things that I love about the work that you do is you do it in an urban context rather than either rural or on a farm. Because I think we, as an, as urban dwellers, I mean, I grew up in Manhattan. I've lived in cities my entire life. You know, we walk past so many things. How do you think people can train themselves to see what they pass over every day? Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I think that is where, like, I struggle with the term artist, but I heard somebody once say that, like, what an artist does is, like, help train attention. And so I, I do think, like, in that sense, I'll be like, yeah, okay. Like, I'm not so big on, like, showing work in white rooms. It's not really my vibe. But, like, yes, if it's about kind of drawing attention to things, then, yeah, that that resonates. I mean, that's been one of the really cool things about doing this curb project and particularly the social media aspect of it for a long time. Um, and I haven't done it so much now, but like for a long time, just every morning on my dog walk, I would just like make these little pictures be like, hey, Asiatic day flower looking cute, you know, like and kind of like identify all of these plants that live around my neighborhood. And I had so many people say to me, like, man, you've really changed the way I look at my block. You know, like I've started to realize how many plants there are around me that I just kind of 
you know, there's a term and it's perhaps a little ableist plant blindness there, you know, that, that we just kind of see green and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just some green stuff over there. But when you actually stop and train your attention, even on a lawn, how many different beings are there? Assuming it hasn't been totally bioengineered. Like it's, it's amazing how much diversity there is if you just stop and take one moment to look. You're interested, I know, in seed saving in urban places. Is that something that's been done over time? Is that a new thing, seed saving for weeds, you know, these things that we pass over? But as you say, weeds have so much value for so many reasons. Uh, I was intrigued by reading about what you were doing there. Or highlighting, highlighting, you didn't do it. Highlighting, yeah. I mean, I, I am a BB seed saver, I will say that. But I, I will uplift here um, people like my friends Ellie and Anne who run the Next Epoch Seed Library, and that is exactly what they do. They have a seed library of spontaneous urban plants, which is one of the ways that we kind of alternately frame weeds, right? Um, so they have a whole library of those plants and do a really great job of kind of talking about the fact that, you know, if you live in an urban place like my neighborhood, which is there's lots of abandoned lots still, there's lots of, you know, all around Newtown Creek, right, is just kind of rewilded in its own weird black mayonnaise sludgy way. You know, you've, you've got all of these plants that are, are showing up there and, and making it work. As we continue down this road, those plants are the ones that are adapting to be able to survive. And some of them are wild crop cousins to the plants that we eat every day, you know? So black nightshade is the wild crop cousin to our tomatoes, right? At what point are we going to need to be able to call on some of that genetic legacy and bring it back to our tomatoes, which, I mean, if anybody here grows tomatoes, you know, it's like, I love them. I grow them every year. Good Lord, they're the most finicky things on the planet. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you look at them wrong and they're like, I'm dying. And so like, you know, these ways in which we can kind of lean on these wild cousins and, and help us all, right, continue to adapt and evolve. I'd love to hear about your work at Solar One, and then I know that the that landscape is going to be raised. But what were you doing to save what you had started there? Yeah, so the um, the Park Stycove Park where I work um, has been there for about twenty five years. It's actually kind of an amazing story in the sense that the community in Stytown there was going to be a, a river walk built by some developers, and they fought and they won for it to be a green space. Um, and that green space is managed by the nonprofit that I work for, and it has been there for about 25 years. So we have and had 45-year-old oak trees um, that rain down acorns during a mast year. Um, there's, I mean, there's just, it's an amazing uh, space that is going away. Just yesterday, I cut down five oak trees and a couple others. Did you actually personally cut down five oak trees? I cut down one of them. Yeah. Um, I've cut down two of the trees in the park. You know, it's a lot of work to what they want to do is they just want to knock the tree down, throw it in the chipper, take it away, throw it in the dump. I'm making their lives considerably more complicated by saying like, no, no, you're going to take the tree down. I'm going to harvest everything that's four to eight inches. I'm going to cut it into three foot lengths. I'm going to cart those away. And then my friends are going to take all the tree trunks. So that's what I did, much to their chagrin yesterday, but we did it. Congratulations. Thank you. And and what will happen with what you cut down? So yeah, the shiitake logs that we have, some of them went to my friends Gil and Samuel, who are both doing other kind of food justice related work in, in Queens and Brooklyn. And then I, I held back a, a handful um, in order to give to a couple of community groups that, that I've kind of dog-eared for this. I had many, many people who were very interested in getting, getting shiitake logs, and I had hoped when the north end of the park came down, I had like 12 oak trees in that round that I would 
get to give them away, but they just mulched it all. So I did not. Oh. Yeah, it hurt. I cried. I'm not going to lie. I cried that day. Yeah, it sucked. Um, but it's over now. We're fine. Um, and so uh, now I just had five more come down. I, I'm going to give those away. And then hopefully it worked out okay. And when they take down the next batch, hopefully they'll let me do it again. Because for me, it's just like, if you're doing a climate mitigation project, dear God, why would you throw it all in the dump? Like... <laughs> just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I've, I've spent my whole summer basically deaccessioning as many living beings from that park as possible. I've, I've hosted multiple come and dig your own plant adoption events with community groups and community gardens um, and then these shiitake logs. So, yeah, I'm trying to kind of make meaning out of what feels just like sheer chaos. And are there other places that are deaccessioned clean land where people should go in and figure out how to repurpose rather than just bulldoze? Well, that's a, that brings me to talk about something I'm very excited to be involved in now, which is called Nice Caps, which is New York City's communities activating public space. There is so much public land. There are so many vacant lots. Actually, several years ago, there was a project called 596 Acres, and I think you can still look it up online, and it'll show you a map of all of the lots in just Brooklyn alone, I believe, if people could gain access to them, they could be creating gardens, green spaces, community spaces. And so this group, Nice Caps, that I'm working with, with um, the Bronx River Foodway, which is the other, you know, food forest in New York City, um, and my friend Nathan Hunter, who manages that space, and Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice, and a whole cohort of amazing different organizations, El Puente, I mean, the DOH is involved, Parks is involved. We're doing a lot of, right now, research and organizing in hopes to be able to make the argument for policy that would get more of the commons into the community's hands and be able to use that to not only kind of do food justice work, but to do circular economy work and to, you know, build community and heal the land, sequester all this rain that we're going to be getting. I mean, there's just the, the benefits are like many millions scads, right? And what, you know, why would someone object? So one of the reasons you cannot, it is illegal to forage on public land, for instance. Um, first of all, it's rooted in um, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, and anti-immigrant history. But these days, one of the reasons why that is kind of commonly held, from what I've been told, is we live in a litigious society. And the idea that they think that somebody's going to come through and accidentally eat a, a water hemlock when they're trying to get a wild carrot and die and sue them is what they think is going to happen. Or they think that someone's going to come along and just, like, demolish, you know, an entire swath of, say, elderberries and leave, you know, leave the plants in ruins. Most people who forage know what they're doing and, and aren't going to do that because they understand that, like, if you decimate it, you don't get any the next time. You know, it's not supermarket sweep. It's an ecosystem. People who do forge, don't they generally leave some for either the next person or the next year? I've always heard that with ramps. Like you you just can't wipe out the entire ramp population. That's right. And these days, you know, and I mean, these conversations are constantly shifting, right? These days, when you're going to harvest ramps, please leave the bulbs. Just take a few of the leaves. Um, you know, there are these ways in which we're kind of, again, having to consistently learn like, okay, this population is now hurt. Let's figure out how we kind of adapt how we are operating so that we can have it come back. Meanwhile, I'm like, there's field garlic. There's plenty. Y'all have at it. You know what I mean? And so in order to be able to access this land, a law needs to change. There needs to be policy and there needs to be, um, you know, I mean, this is kind of like my own like pie in the sky. 
I come from hunters, right? You have a hunting license. You have a fishing license. You can go out, you can collect so many deer, you can collect so many turkey or so many bass, right? What if we had foraging licenses? And they were like IDNYC licenses where it's like, okay, you know, it's not contingent upon your citizenship status or even what language you speak. You have to understand the implications of what you're doing. It would be great also. We need we need way more soil testing. Um, that's where I work a lot with the Urban Soil Institute. I mean, have you seen leaders in this area? I'm thinking about the forest in Atlanta that I learned about through your work. I mean, there's a couple of cities that have committed to agriculture, like urban agriculture, which fascinates me. Um, so who are the leaders here and what are they doing? You know, there are so many people who have been in this game because they they had to be because their communities were so historically marginalized for so long. And we have so much to learn from how they've done this. I mean, during the pandemic, I did a project, a mutual aid project with a group of people called the Milk Crate Gardens Project, where we um, redistributed an urban farm from JFK to a bunch of community groups around the city. And one day we took, we were delivering to the Bronx. And in that day, I went to maybe 12 or 15 different community gardens in the Bronx. And I was just blown away by just how sophisticated their their systems were and what they were doing and how much food they were producing in such small spaces and giving away for free. You know what I mean? And I was just like, oh man, this is it. You know, it's happening. And what those folks need is more access to land and more funds and for bureaucracy to get out of their way and let them do it. Yeah, I've been to some extraordinary um, gardens in Detroit. And there's a project called Bandu Gardens, which I don't know if you've heard of, but that where the food's harvested and then, you know, sold or they do catering. And it's just it's to feed the families, but it it's also an extraordinary business. Yeah. I was going to uplift um, Kelly Street Garden and, and uh, New Roots Community Farm, which is run by Cheryl Durant and Renee Kite. Renee, I hope I'm saying your last name right. Um, and I mean, they they just, with the amount of land they have, how much food they're able to produce and then give away for free. And the space that they create, not only for kind of South Bronx, historical South Bronx residents, but also like newcomer immigrant communities and the way that they grow seeds out for, say, their new immigrant neighbors and kind of give people a a reconnection to land even when they're in a new place. Like, I just, I have so much respect and admiration for their work. All of those types of organizations or, or, or community groups, they are the model that I want to see reproduced in micro scale everywhere. So you created an extraordinary visual of the food system. I mean, people who are listening aren't going to get to see it, although we can tell them what the link is. Yeah, my food web mind map. So I've been working on it for a couple of years. Um, I actually started it while I was in a residency at um, Swale House on on Governor's Island. I think it's kind of actually like an evidence of what this this curb process has been for me in the sense that it just started with like, oh, I wonder if this stuff in my neighborhood's edible. Expanding to like, oh my God, now I know how much is involved in making grain from amaranth. So kind of the three primary hubs right now, and it's iterative. So this is the 2021 version, um, are food, land, and people. And then all of the things that kind of spring off of that. When you're talking about people, you've got the fact that our entire uh, nation was built on the backs of black labor, right? Um, you've got indigenous land rights. You've got class, right? And and how things get valued. You've got economics, which I don't understand as a mythology. Um, you know, you've got all of these things that, that kind of feed into how we eat. And I hope that the next time I make it, it will be able to be kind of user-generated. Um, I would like to look for a way to 
have people be able to help add to it and continue to kind of pad out all of the things that go into how we eat. Because I just think it's, it's like, once again, you know, it's very easy for us to just kind of take the binary of like, well, I don't drink milk, so I'm doing the right thing, as opposed to, okay, but if you follow this mind map this direction, there might be some instances in which dairy is important for certain people or certain communities or certain contexts, right? And so like the ways that we can kind of continue to hold that complexity and render it visible, I think is is one of the things that I'm here for. It is available sort of as a public document on the web. What's the website? So it is um, viewable at tinyurl.com curb food web. I really urge everyone to take a look at it. It's a beautiful piece of work. And I didn't realize that you'd actually been sort of aggregating thinking and drawing it over two years. I know one of the things you're extremely interested in is climate change, as we all are. I'm freaked out about it. You're kind of optimistic. So when I heard that you were optimistic, I'm like, dude, this is the most exciting thing. And I can't believe I'm saving it's kind of almost to last. But tell me, why are you optimistic? Oh, boy. I mean, I think it depends on the day whether I'm optimistic about it or not. You know, I think to to quote the old overused George Carlin of it all, like the planet's going to be fine. I'm more worried about humanity, but sometimes I'm not so worried anymore about whether or not we survive. But that being said, uh, that's my more cynical version. I would say that I think we're in a moment in which it is becoming, I hope, painfully apparent that like we have to do something else. And I think this the the challenge is, you know, you hear all the time that it's not about individual choices, right? That that what's ultimately guiding our Thelma and Louise convertible towards the cliff is, you know, a handful of billionaires, a handful of corporations who have kind of got us all by the proverbial throat. That makes me feel so powerless to be able to stop those entities. But what makes me feel powerful or hopeful is the idea that if we move as a flock, no, an individual can't do anything. But if we collectively organize ourselves, which literally like herding cats, you know, if we can, we can change that. They're in control because we put them there. And so like we have to start to remember our own power in that regard and build the systems that will render theirs obsolete And it's going to require some discomfort. It's going to require some hard work. It's going to require not relying upon a system that just presumes that there will always be more, more, more. But I do think, you know, when the pandemic started, I was like, wow, okay, here's this moment. Okay, wow, everybody's at home. Uh, They're they're cooking their own food again. Great. Okay. um, Yes, let's let's show people like you can make your own oatmeal milk. Like here's some plants you could go find in your in your local ecosystem. Right. Like I was so excited that there was this moment in which the machine paused. Sadly, catastrophe after catastrophe, at some point, we're going to have to wake up. Well, you uh, you have a plot of land as an individual who believes that individuals can help change the future. What are you taking in your own hands? Yeah. So the piece of land that we've bought is ostensibly, you know, it's funny, I was just in Kentucky for Thanksgiving and my grandmother asked me, do you have a retirement account? And I was like, I have nine acres of retirement account. And I hope that by the time I am dead, I have figured out a way to, through some form of very clever land back, give that land back to the Oneida Oneida community, um, the Oneida tribe. 
I just have to figure out what that process is. And there are a lot of people who are doing this, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to slowly organize and gather resources for how I can do that. I will say, while I've been at this job in which the park that I care for goes away, like being able to then go somewhere else and be like, okay, but I still have this land and these plants where everything is not dying. Um, That's been pretty important for my mental health this year. I got to be honest. It feels good to watch you work with rather than against the land. Um, Well, at the end of each podcast, I ask my guest to pay it forward to a woman who's in the world of food. And I, you've given so many shout outs, which are fantastic, which we will collect. But I don't know if there's one final one, someone who's inspired you, who you think more people need to know about that we could end the podcast on. So Adea Brownlee, um, her family hails from the uh, Afro-Indigenous communities off the South Carolina and Georgia coast in the Sea Islands. Uh, she also is the former president of the Brooklyn Queens Land Trust. I actually met her doing that Milk Crate Gardens project. Um, She's just a, a, a beautiful soul, and um, she she has a plan to maybe build some kind of cool food music space down in the Sea Islands. Um, so yeah, I think Saudea Brownlee, that's who I'm going to uplift. Fantastic. I, I love learning about uh, her work, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's fantastic to have had this conversation with you. Thanks, all of you, for listening, and we'll be back next week with more extraordinary stories from extraordinary, inspiring human beings. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.